Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We were in verse 4. Last time we were in Ephesians a couple weeks ago, and we will likely remain in verse 4 for another couple few weeks. So follow as I read again Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. This is the Word of God. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. So last time we focused on the first half of the verse, and most of our time was really spent considering one word, fathers. Why is it that only the fathers are addressed here? It's certainly not that they're the only ones involved in raising the children. Uh, In fact, mothers are often more involved time-wise, especially in the early years. The point is simply that the man, just as the man is the head of his wife, so he is also the head of his household. So we said that the nature of fatherhood is inherent responsibility. It's not that the mother doesn't have responsibility in bringing up the children. It's just that God puts all of the weight of the responsibility on the father's back. He's like the head coach. Uh, The whole team is his responsibility. Of course, the players have responsibilities. And without them, the team is no good, but... All of the responsibility ultimately falls on the head coach. So it is with the father. Bringing up the children, raising them up to maturity is essentially all on him. But as we'll see, it's not just to bring them to maturity any old way we like. Uh, Neither is it to bring them to maturity as we define Maturity, kind of our picture of what maturity would look like. It is a particular kind of maturity that we are to aim at, maturity in the Lord, and there is a particular process that we are called to take up in order to get them there. Here called the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I think that will become more clear what that might entail as we go. Uh, The first thing to consider about this process of bringing our children to maturity is the phrase, of the Lord. It is a uh, prepositional phrase which modifies both discipline and instruction. So it could read, raise them in the discipline of the Lord and raise them in the instruction of the Lord. That said, I don't think um, discipline and instruction are necessarily the best words to use here. And it's not just me popping off and being like, well, these guys, you know. uh, As you'll see, I mean, in different translations, various words are used. And and I think it's because it's, uh, you know, hard to know which one to use. But this is a situation where knowing the original Greek language, or at least those words in the original Greek language, is helpful. So the words are paideia, P-A-I-D-E-I-A, and nuthesia, N-O-U-T-H-E-S-I-A. The paideia of the Lord and the nuthesia of the Lord. While we're here, just a couple quick things about Bible translation. There are times when translators are faced with the problem that there is not an exact English word 
that translates from the Greek. You know, Greeks in the New Testament, that's the original language, Hebrew in the Old Testament. Um, so either way, sometimes they're just, you know, there are limits to language and it doesn't translate exactly. Uh, maybe you could use a few different English words to kind of capture the basic idea, and sometimes translators will do that, especially in more of a thought-for-thought translation where they're just trying to get a summary. Um, NIV or something like that is more... The, the ESV is more a word-for-word, so they're trying to get, you know, the exact word as we go. Um, other times they'll just choose what they think fits best. So in the case of Paideia, the ESV says discipline, discipline of the Lord. The NIV says training. The NASB says discipline. The King James says nurture. Uh, The Holman Christian New King James both say training as well. So you can see there's just this, they're trying to get what is exactly this Paideia saying. I think we really get a fuller picture of it when we take all those together. And even then, I don't think we're there yet. And I don't say this to cause you to doubt Bible translations. Like, well, what? I'm just reading the ESV. You know, can I not really read what God's saying? I don't, I don't believe that at all. Uh, all the ones I just mentioned are good translations. You can trust your translation. Uh, translated by a team of translators. It's not just some guy, you know, I think this word will go. But these are experts in the science of translation. And, um, you know, I use the ESV, but any of those ones that I just mentioned... They're great translations. It's just, the point is, it's hard sometimes to get it exactly. So, we have Paideia, we have Nuthesia. Fathers, raise your children in the Paideia of the Lord and the Nuthesia of the Lord. Let's start with Paideia. That is a word that is lost on us, but would likely be very familiar to all of the believers who originally read this letter in the church in Ephesus. So, at the time of Paul's writing, Rome is the great world power. Before the Roman Empire, you had ancient and classical Greece, you know, kind of maybe 800 B.C., then 400, you get into classical Greece. Out of that comes Alexander the Great, who conquers the world, 400 B.C. or so. One of his primary objectives was to spread the Greek language all over the world and to establish the Greek culture all over the world. And much of that was adopted in the Roman Empire, which was established before the time of Christ and was really thriving um, at the time of Christ. So the point is, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, they dominate back-to-back, and Rome adopts much of Greek culture, and then they have their little nuance, you know. So sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Greco-Roman world, right? So here are these Christians in Ephesus... Rome rules the world. Greco-Roman culture has spread everywhere to some degree. And Paideia was central to how it all happened. Now, I've referred to it before as a process of formation or a process of enculturation. Basically, um, the leaders of Rome had the ideal Roman citizen in mind. Right? This is who we want to produce when they come of age, when they become an adult. Uh, they wanted to reproduce themselves. They wanted to reproduce their culture. And Paideia was the process of formation to get it done. It was an all-encompassing Greco-Roman enculturation from the cradle to the grave. I've used the example before of the Spartan warriors. Uh, if you've seen the movie 300, 
from the time the young Spartan was born, he was immersed in a process of formation that would make him into a Spartan warrior. They knew how to get what they wanted. This process was their paideia. Another example, evil as it may be, would be Hitler's Germany. You know, about Hitler Youth and that that was just a key part of the fabric of getting what he wanted and getting where he wanted to go. It was a total enculturation from the cradle to adulthood and all of life immersion in the process of formation to reach the desired end. Indoctrination of the youth was very important to Hitler's plan. It was the worst kind of brainwashing but as a historical example, it is an example, nonetheless, of Paideia. You could use Mao's communist China as well. All of these cultures had their vision of what an ideal citizen was, and then they had their Paideia, whether they called it that or not. Uh, they had this all-encompassing process of formation or enculturation to get them where they wanted to go. So I recently checked out these three books from the Harding Theological Library, which is a great library. It's the Church of Christ Library over off Cherry, I think it is. Um, They have, like, everything. But those three books are written by a German scholar named Werner Jaeger, I think is how you say it. And uh, he has written the books on Paideia, three volumes digging into the Paideia of Greco-Roman culture. And in the opening, he says this. He says, It's a difficult thing to define, like other broad comprehensive concepts such as philosophy or culture. Uh, it's impossible to bring in, it's impossible to define it without bringing in modern concepts like civilization, culture, tradition, literature, education. But um, none of them really covers what the Greeks meant by paideia. Each of them is only one aspect of their paideia. Okay, got it? So, so civilization, culture, tradition, literature, education, those don't equal paideia. They're one aspect of it, all of them together. Um, now you're getting at what their paideia was. It was an all-of-life process of formation seeking to wholly form each person into their ideal person who could then take his place in carry, or her place in carrying on the building and shaping of uh, forming their ideal culture. Okay, so simply said, the Greco-Roman world had a vision of the ideal citizen and they had a process to shape people into that ideal citizen. That process was paideia. It involved everything. It involved the home. It involved the larger community and culture. It involved their traditions. It involved their literature and philosophy. It involved their education. And it went beyond that. But Paideia wasn't just concerned with shaping individuals. Uh, As I said a minute ago, it was concerned with shaping and building a culture. And, of course, the individuals are key to that. Um, But the ultimate end was the culture. You know, Rome. If you see uh, the movie and just kind of the way, that's what they were after. They were after the Rome of their ideal. So in Ephesians 6.4, Paul says, Fathers, raise your children in the paideia of the Lord. Which would involve having a vision of the ideal Christian citizen, 
A vision, of course, that is formed by God's Word. It would also involve overseeing that process of formation. Uh, It would involve a whole life enculturation of the whole person so that he or she is able to take his or her place in carrying on that great work of building and forming and shaping a distinctly Christian culture, uh, a counterculture to this world. And I think there's a problem for us in grasping this already because we're really not too familiar with that concept of a distinctly Christian culture. Uh, Maybe it's because we're too at home here or the lines are too blurry or whatever, but you know, we are called to live in the world, in the world's cultures, though not of them. Uh, we're called to be a city on a hill. Tim Keller describes this as an alternate city. Um, David Platt's new book, Counterculture. You know, we're to be a counterculture to the world's cultures. Uh, we are to give the world an alternate vision of the world. And frankly, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a vision much closer to what. God intends for the world as revealed in his word. So uh, I always go back to the Orthodox Jews in my neighborhood. Uh, I think they have a pretty good understanding of at least just the alternate culture thing. Um, In many ways, I think they understand it more than we do. I think they understand the concept of paideia, whether they know that word or not, you know, in all of life and culturation to the next generation. I think they understand that more than we do as well. That's not to think. That's not to say I think they're the model. I mean, they are without Christ, and that is, uh, you know, very significant. But an example, much like Hitler's Germany and Mao's China, and all this kind of all of life enculturation. I think they at least have some understanding of um, what it is to be a counterculture and to bring up the next generation immersed in that culture. It touches everything, every day. Every week, all the time, um, you know, everything. All right, next, the Nuthesia of the Lord. So some translations will translate this as instruction, some as admonition. The idea is to teach, to warn, uh, to impress upon, to counsel. So dads, not only are we called to raise up our children in the paideia of the Lord, but we're called to raise them in the teaching and the instruction of the Lord, warning them, encouraging them, impressing the truth upon them, counseling them in the truth. We are to be their chief teachers and counselors. Um, there's a conversation I had with a, a dad recently whose child is at a major crossroads who uh, feels like they are the opposite sex from what their body shows them to be. And, you know, I really cannot imagine how difficult that must be for, uh, of course, for the child, but also for the dad who, who loves his child and, um, you know, wants the best for them. And so I encourage him to be compassionate, which he was, and uh, to enter in with his child to console and to comfort. But at, the one, at one point he said, you know, I just don't want to force Christianity. I don't want to force, I don't want to say anything, essentially, is what he was saying. And, and I was thinking about this passage, and I said... I think that's exactly what you were made for. I mean, I think that's exactly what God wants you to do. Now, to force it on the child has this negative connotation to it, but to teach, to instruct, to warn, to admonish, to impress the truth upon the child 
to counsel them according to God's Word, that is exactly what we are here for. And that's exactly what the Father must do in in that situation. You know, sin has confused the child's sense of self, sense of God, sense of the world, and the dad and the mom. But again, why is only the dad mentioned? Because the responsibility falls on him. But it, it is the parent's responsibility to help the child make sense out of this. Um, It's dark in the child's world, right? It's confusing. God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And mom and dad are out front carrying the light, walking the path. We're here to interpret the world for our children according to the truth. And look, that's getting trickier. I mean, these things where a generation ago where you never would have dreamed, they are the popular way now. And the messages are coming from the world. And they're, they're not true. And they make things more confusing. And you can go to professionals who will validate your confusion in the worst kind... I think we should validate confusion in the sense that this is confusing. you know. And I'm very sorry for your confusion. But they will call your feelings the truth and tell you to... Follow them. And so, um, we have to interpret the world for our children. Sometimes it's easier than others, but it's always our job. Dad and mom, dad leads the way. And in this sense, every dad is called to be a pastor in his home. Um, again, it's, it's not whether but which. It's not whether dad is a pastor of sorts in his home, but it's what kind of pastor. You know, either a good pastor or a bad pastor, but... Nonetheless, uh, our, our shepherding influence will be felt in our homes to shepherd, to teach, to warn, to encourage, to, to counsel, to instruct. Um, so, if we put these two together, we're called to raise our children immersed in an all-of-life Christian enculturation, and we're called to be their primary teachers and counselors in this process of formation. Uh, This is not a new biblical idea. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The book of Deuteronomy is a book of covenant renewal. It took place toward the end of the 40-year wilderness period uh, between when People of Israel received the law at Mount Sinai, and when they were heading into the Promised Land in Canaan, there is that 40-year period wandering in the wilderness. So they're gathered together on the doorstep of the Promised Land. They're being reminded of God's commitment to them in covenant, as we talked about, you know, God's commitment in covenant to His people undergirds whatever commitments they will make to Him. And, uh, and they're also having their commitments spelled out for them. You know, these are the things that you're going to have to do when you get there in order to stay in uh, fellowship with God. So, in chapter 5, you have a retelling of the Ten Commandments, which, remember, start with grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of this given in the context of grace. And then we'll pick up in in chapter 6. Follow as I read verses 1 through 7, Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, 
by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So uh, keep your Bible open there and we'll work through it. Verse 1, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules. You go in the land to possess it. This is, in other words, you know, this is the way that God has prescribed for you to go to walk in His blessing. All of it is blessing. All of it is grace. It's all a gift. This is the way that you walk in that gift. Uh, Verse 2 and 3, that you may fear the Lord, your son, your son's son, by uh, keeping God's commands all your days, that your days may be long. So, the people are about to enter the land, and one of the big problems that they're facing is that the land is enemy-occupied territory. Now, it's been promised. It was promised a long time ago to Abraham. And they've been looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise for hundreds of years. And yet, there they are on the doorstep of Canaan, and there's the Canaanites, and the Amalekites, and the Amorites, and all the other ites. The people of Israel outnumbered. They're prone to fear. But they're reminded, don't fear them, fear God. Don't worry about, as it says in the New Testament, don't worry about those who can only kill the body. Worry about the one who can destroy body and soul. Trust God and He will fight for you. You know, that's one of the main themes throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the people of Israel, all the odds are always stacked against them. And it's about trusting Him that He's going to fight for His people, and where they get in trouble is when they start trusting in their own might, in their own military prowess, or whatever it is. But trusting God, He will fight for us. Fear God by following Him according to His commands. So, uh, it goes on. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to do what God has said, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. There is great blessing involved, expansive blessing involved for God's people. Then we come to... Verses 4 and 5, what is known as the Shema, because of the first word, Shema, to hear in Hebrew. Uh, This was the heart and soul of all of the Jewish religion. One commentator said, this is the fundamental truth of Israel's religion and the fundamental duty founded upon it. It's about who God is and what God's people are to do in response to who He is. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know, this is a declaration of monotheism uh, reminding the people of Israel as they're facing the land and all of these gods of, you know, the many gods, the polytheists over there. Uh, they're, they're reminded, no, there's only one God, and He's your God. Yahweh is God. So they need not fear the false gods because the one true God is theirs, and He fights for His people. Some wonder if this isn't also a mention of God's unity, like a reference to the Trinity. Um, Maybe so. Then comes verse 5, what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. So God's people have been reminded of His allegiance to them, and they're being called to total allegiance to Him. They're being called to commit to Him with all of who they are and all of what they've got. 
And this is, again, how God's people fight their enemies. We trust and obey God with all of who we are and all of what we have, and He fights for us. Period. Um, And this is a generational commitment. God's salvation is to the generations. We talked about those promises for weeks in here, it seems like. And God has given responsibility in any given generation to raise up and train up the next generation. So it says, These words shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So the command is twofold. The first part, to teach diligently. Some translations say to sharpen your children. Uh, One commentator says that uh, in Hebrew, this is to, to sharpen or hone the children with God's Word, the molding and formative uh, carving of the children with the Word of God, which sounds familiar. Parents are called to oversee and to execute the formation of the child into a godly man or a godly woman. Well, how do they do that? Talk of it when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This is what's called a um, double merism in Hebrew, which is basically just showing us that we're to talk about the Scriptures with our children at all times and um, in all places. It's a total formation that happens with an all-encompassing enculturation. So God has set for His people Israel this vision of this ideal culture and this vision of the ideal godly citizens in order to occupy and build that culture uh, parents not only had the responsibility to, you know, be those people themselves, but also to bring their children to be those people as well. Of course, always dependent on God's grace, which alone can do that. And again, it involved everything. Home life, social life, larger culture and community. It shaped their traditions. Their traditions shaped them. It involved their education. It involved everything. All of life, all the time. This is the way that God set it up. This is how salvation is passed from generation to generation. You know, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 are very similar. It's it's a call to the enculturation of the children of God's people. It's an all-of-life immersion in an all-of-life process of formation from the cradle to adulthood. It's founded upon God's Word. It's fueled by God's Word being spoken to them all the time from every angle. Not just on Sundays and Wednesdays. That is just the beginning. And uh, really the only difference then between God's new covenant people, between us and His people in Deuteronomy 6, is that we have actually been given the capacity to carry it out. You know, God's people failed to live out this call in the promised land. In fact, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and thank God for the gift of His Son who lived the perfect life that we have not lived and died for the punishment of our sins on the cross. Not only that, He rose from death, He went back to heaven and He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, which was not what happened with His old covenant people. We are new in that way. Um, so that we can now do what God's people once could not do, which is follow Him according to the ways that He has prescribed for us. Of course, not to earn salvation. Jesus earned it for us. But to live out God's promised blessing of salvation to the generations. 
So again, like, like Israel of old, we are surrounded by enemies, both individual and corporate enemies of the Gospel. We even have larger enemy cultures. We're living in one right now. And we should hear the same thing that, God, that God's people heard long ago. Do not fear them. Fear God. Do not fear what the enemies can do to you, to me, to our children. Fear God by following Him according to His commands. He will fight for us. So, um, for many of you, today's lesson is going to feel unfinished. What about the implications? I mean, what, what does paideia look like? And, and uh, what, are, what are some of the implications for our home life and, and education and beyond? Really, today I'm just trying to get square on the principles. Um, I wanted you, I wanted us to be able to think through the principles, to reflect on, on what we're called to do and... Um, you know, to begin thinking on where we are with that, both individually and, and corporately, to begin thinking through the implications and applications for yourself. I have said before that paideia has implications for the way that we seek to educate our children, but again, to make this all about education is to totally miss the point. One aspect of a much larger process of formation and culturation. As Paideia expert Werner Jaeger said, uh, education is a part of it, but it's much bigger than that. So we need to be clear on the principle of the thing before we start making applications. So for those that thought we were going to talk about the model or method of educating our children today, um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. You'll have to keep coming back. We are going to talk about that. But again, those are implications, those are applications of what we've been talking about today. We need to be square on the principle of the thing before we have a chance to make the right applications. And I will say this, uh, a year or so ago, I sent out a GOL um, asking, I was saying, you know, Levi's getting older and we're starting to think about school and this is where we live and this is what we got. And um, So I asked two questions, what constitutes a good ed- education? And what makes your particular model or school a good one? And uh, let me just say that most people jump straight into the model or school. Uh, Most people pass right over the principles of a good education and jump straight to, again, the model or the school. Very few people, very few people had anything to say from the Bible. But that's where we get our principles. Um, You know, again, I know people are passionate about their model and their school, whether public or private or home school, but uh, very few made any mention of of the Bible, of responsibility before God, and frankly, that's not good. I mean, that's not a good start. So how do we know we're making good applications if we're not starting with good principles? And that's really what I would say today. I know God hasn't said Houston or Briarcrest or other Um, in His Word. But again, those are just applications. Has He said anything in regard to principles? And that has to be our first concern. So I just wanted to get that out there so that we can all be thinking about Paideia and Nuthesia. And uh, if you're like, I've already forgotten most of what you said, uh, then this will be on the app hopefully later in the week. 
And again, then you can start to think about implications and applications for family life, for church life, for personal devotional life, for education, for larger Christian culture, and uh, all of that. We'll keep talking about it. Uh, For now, does anybody have any questions or comments about what we've covered? Chris, I was thinking about when you talk about the implications of the choices that we make when it comes to this enculturation. And years ago, I was studying about uh, uh, Judaism and the most devout sect of, or denomination of Judaism, however you want to describe it, would be the Hasidic Jews. So um, it, the story that, that strikes me talks about the uh, responsibility that they place on the oldest male child um, and it is when the child turns 18 the parents turn over the full finances of their house and the future of their finances to that child at 18 mm-hmm. and I mean the, the gravity of that never leaves me mm-hmm. and I think that's about finances mm-hmm. right and, and how they do that and so this was just talking about you know how we to raise up our children. And I can tell you what, if I knew that I had to give Kaylin my finances in nine more years, we would be doing things differently than what we're doing. Yeah. And yet, I think about you know the eternal message that uh-huh. I want her to have, and it makes me feel guilty. Well, crap, I'm doing a bad job on the financial part. I am, I am not enculturating enough uh-huh. on the part uh, for the eternal message. So... That's a great that's a great point. And and let me just say, it's not only the eternal message that you want her to have because this is calling us to be concerned about here, about about building Christian culture and building ideal Christian citizens to build and shape the culture. And I think we're content being a little subculture when in reality we're to be a counterculture and to show the world a different vision of life, more closely aligned with what God has has called us to because we're new creations in Christ. But all that to say, I think thinking through those kind of things, because the Hasidic Jews get that from somewhere, and we have it. Um, you know, that is something throughout the Old Testament and just the firstborn. And those kind of things. Look, I don't, I don't think that we're going to get, um, now we've got it licked. This is what Christian paideia looks like to a T. But even looking back at some of that is one of the things uh, in our culture uh, prolonged adolescence and children who grow up not understanding anything about taking responsibility. Okay, well, what would something like that do in preparation for an 18-year-old that's going to inherit the, the family inheritance and be in charge? You know, that is huge. So even, I think that, thinking through those things, that's exactly what I wanted today to be about, is we've got to think through the principles before we ever get to this is what it should look like. But um, we got a lot to learn. And I think to meditate on some things like that and, and to think through some of the, the weaknesses that we have um, in our families and in our church culture and, and how can those be strengthened according to the principles of the Word of God. That's a great... Jessica. I noticed like, something was just talking about like, the, the guilt. And I think hearing what I should be as a parent... <coughs> does that. Mm-hmm. It causes a guilt to stir, and I think, man, I'm messing up. One of mine is basically growing up, and maybe mm-hmm. I missed it. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe I should have been looking for the lifelong thing, but I know that 
in spite of that message out there, God is sovereign over that child's life. Mm -hmm. My parents did not That's right. one minute sit around and read scripture with me every morning, but I can tell you my mom was on her face every morning praying for her family. And mm -hmm. they messed up a lot, and all of us, some of us were in public, some were in private, the next door neighbors at home school, like we were, it was all around us, but I don't think, um, I think if we're not meditating with God's word in the first place, I'm not sure that any of it's going to matter if it's not within us first. If we're not able to really live and breathe that for our children, I can quote scripture to them, I can do whatever, but I think our children and people around us at work, if we don't have children, whoever it is, see Christ by what what we're meditating on versus I did these five things today and so now I'm good and my kid's in the right school. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very slippery slope to get into mm -hmm. um, with parenting. Um, anyways, I have a lot of thoughts about it and I'm excited to hear about next week, but um, I think my first response is guilt about messed up. Mm -hmm. You know, well, and then I think we have to be able to say to ourselves, there's a lot of false guilt. There's a lot of that like, okay, granted, no one has measured up. But then if there's sin that's making us feel guilty, then we repent. You know, like we don't just try to, in some nebulous way, you know, we, we say, God, I have sinned in this way, and that sin is covered in Christ. I, you know, we preach the gospel to ourselves. All of our sin is forgiven. And then I think, too, we remind ourselves not only of the grace for forgiveness, but also for transformation. You know, God has now given us the Spirit to do what His people once could not do. So not only should I repent of something, but is there something to, to replace the path I've been walking that you've called me to particularly? And I'm with you. I mean, I think any time we face God's law, we're, we're exposed. And so I would just encourage you, where there's guilt because of sin... Repent and your sins are forgiven. Um, all of them are paid for. And, and I think there's also a false guilt where we just, you know... And, and to your point, um, none of us will measure up. None of us will do this without sin. None of us will perfect uh, the Christian paideia. But uh, nonetheless, that is our aim. And we live in these cycles of sin and repentance and faith in Christ and, and following Him according to His ways. So, what do you say? No, I think it's um, where you, you said before um, whether you're good and your your father you're either good or bad. I mean, but you're going to be one way or the other. And I think the importance of that is kind of um, why He puts responsibility on fathers is because a lot of times we relate to our Heavenly Father the way we relate to our Earth fathers. Mm -hmm. And if we're not following the principles laid out, then that's how our children are going to go. Mm -hmm. And and back to, you know, I, I agree with what Jessica said in the sense that like God is sovereign. I mean, you know, my my dad and I have a unique, wonderful relationship where he is able to be open with me about his failures as a father and all the many ways where he didn't even know what he didn't know and, you know, all these things. And yet, um, he also affirms the, the right way, you know, um, that this is where I failed. And that's how I think we get stronger generationally. And um, anyway, anyone else? All right, we'll keep going. I'll pray and then uh, go to church. Father in heaven, thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, 
Thank You that You're our Father. Thank You that You're our perfect Father. Thank You, Lord, that You rescued us from our sin, that You have adopted us into Your family. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that every last sin is forgiven. Thank You, Holy Spirit, that You indwell us and that You will not leave us, that You are God's guarantee of our inheritance. We know we will be with You forever because You dwell in us and You have given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, You've also opened our eyes and empowered us with with, uh, strength and energy from on high to do what You have designed Your people to do. Lord, we will fall when we do. Would You expose our sins so that we might repent of it and be refreshed again by Your grace. I pray that uh, today as we go to church and take communion and consider uh, what we love to say is is the Gospel as clearly as it can be preached. Um, Lord, that You would refresh Your people in the forgiveness of sins and also that You would re-energize us in... uh, the call that we have to lay down our lives and to carry our crosses and uh, to give it all away and leave it all on the field in service to You. Show us how we can do that to the next generation. Give us wisdom and understanding of what this means, Lord, uh, the paideia and nuthesia of the Lord, of how we can be faithful um, in service to You. And uh, we, we pray for Your grace and mercy on our children. And we understand that we are... Uh, agents of your grace and mercy to them. Help us to walk in that. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.